As Dustin mentioned, we are in 2 Samuel this morning. Let's start out with a little quiz. Anybody here know what um, the original title of 2 Samuel was? I don't expect you to know, but might be surprised if somebody here knows. 1 and 2 Samuel actually at one point were one book. In fact, they weren't divided into two books until um, the Old Testament was translated into Greek, something called the Septuagint. And when they did that, they broke the book into two parts. And actually, it was named 1 Kings and 2 Kings. And then the books that we know as 1 Kings and 2 Kings were actually named 3 Kings and 4 Kings. Now, that's just a little confusing, doesn't it? But it was ultimately renamed to 1 and 2 Samuel. Again, they were one historical book initially but broken into two. And so we've already gone through 1 Samuel. If you remember, 1 Samuel actually covers the rise of Saul, Israel's first king. And then 2 Samuel covers the rise of David. In terms of where we would put this book, it actually falls right after Judges for the most part. You remember the story of Judges was between Joshua and then this, and it's where um, there was a period of quite a few hundred years where Israel was basically a bunch of tribes spread out throughout all of Israel. After they had come in and they had conquered it, there were a bunch of tribes in different parts, and each tribe was sort of governed by itself. It wasn't really the nation of Israel, like we would think. Instead, rather, all the Israelis spread out and governed and controlled by all their tribes. And so we have the judges. And we have that period of difficulty where Israel as a whole, if you will, um, had to be rescued on a regular basis by judges. And they would go through this circle, this spiral of obedience to disobedience to God you know, chastising them with their enemies and then bringing a rescuer, a deliverer through the judges. And so that all took us up to 1 Samuel when we finally have Israel call for a king and we have the story of Saul and we studied that through the book of 1 Samuel. So then we come to this today, which covers the life of Paul. If you want to think about how the book is broken down, there's actually some chunks to it, some sections to it. The first nine chapters actually cover David's rise as king and focus on many of his righteous actions and deeds. It's a very positive picture for the most part of King David. Chapters 10 through 20, however, take a little bit of a different turn. And they really look at um, David's sin and struggles. And so we have the first half of the book, the first nine verses or, or nine chapters or so, looking at David in a very positive light, his rise to power then 10 through 20 covering uh, a different side of David. And then lastly, uh, chapters 21 through 24, the last four chapters of this book, cover six different episodes or periods of David's life, and they come from various times throughout his life. And so the best way to sort of think of the book is the first 20 chapters or so are, for the most part, sort of chronological. There are some things that are out of order, like chapter 7 appears to come before chapter, or, you know, after chapter 8 and some weird things. But for the most part... The first 20 chapters are fairly chronological. David's rise to power and then his struggle with sin. But then that last, those last four chapters are just highlight some of his parts of his life and it could be from anywhere within that time period. And I'll try to point those out as we go through it. Today we're going to look at chapter 1, the first, uh, I think it's all, all of chapter 1, so it's 27 verses. And I'll be real frank I don't, I didn't really know what to do with this from a practical application, and so we'll try to address that as we get done with it here. But um, let's go ahead and, and look at this. The first thing that we see 
in 2 Samuel chapter 1 is that David learns of Saul's and Jonathan's deaths. It's a very difficult time. David had just returned back home from a city called Ziklag. His city was actually in ruins because it had been destroyed by fire by an army of the Amalekites. I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30 with me. 1 Samuel chapter 30. I'm just going to read these to give us some context here. Starting in verse 1. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and the Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, and now remember this is David's home, when they came back to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had all been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David's two wives had been taken captive, Anahoam and Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Camelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. These are his own people. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So basically, David goes out to fight, comes back home, and his city has been destroyed and his family taken captive. Not only that, but now the people in the city, the men, part of his own army, um, are upset and thinking about stoning him because they're blaming him for it. Verse 7. Then David said to Abathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Please bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod to David. David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he said to him, Pursue, for you will surely overtake them, and you will, you will um, surely rescue all. So David went, he and his 600 men, and all who were with him, and came to the brook of Bezor, where he, or where those, um, some were left behind. But David pursued, he and 400 men, for 200 who were too exhausted to cross the brook, remained behind at Bezor. Now they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he ate and they provided him water to drink. They gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins and he ate and his spirit revived for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. Obviously he's a bit exhausted. David said to him, To whom do you belong and where do you come from? And he said, I am a man of Egypt, a servant of the Amalekite, and my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid on the Negev and the Cherethites. And on which belong, or and um, and on that which belongs to Judah, and on the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. Then David said to him, "Will you bring me down to this band?" And he said, "Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring you down to this band." When he had brought him down, behold, they were spread over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. So David slaughtered them from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives, but nothing of theirs was missing, whether great or small, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they had taken for themselves. David brought it all back. So David had captured all the sheep and the cattle which the people drove ahead of their other livestock, and they said, this is David's spoil. So David just basically had to go back, rescue all the people from Ziklag, and bring them back. And so we find David back at Ziklag at the beginning of 2 Samuel here. And that's important because of what takes place here. David had only been back for three days. 
and somebody comes to him. So he's only back at Ziklag now. He's totally exhausted. He had been out on a military campaign before that. He comes back to Ziklag. Now he's got to go out and rescue those. He didn't eat for three days. He's completely exhausted. He comes back to Ziklag here. He's only there three days. And this Amalekite man arrives. And he delivers devastating news to David. Now, according to 1 Samuel chapter 31, Israel was battling the Philistines at a place called Mount Gilboa. And they had suffered a massive defeat. The Philistines had overtaken them. They had killed Jonathan and mortally wounded Saul, who had been hit by an arrow. Saul, fearing that he would be tortured by the Philistines, begs his arm bearer to kill him. But his arm bearer, young man, says, no, he can't do it. So Saul falls on his own sword in an attempt to kill himself. But that doesn't quite do it. When he sees the army approaching him of the Philistines, he sees an Amalekite who had been taken captive during that time, standing behind him. So he calls this Amalekite over. He basically says, kill me before the Philistines get to me. So the Amalekite deals Saul his final death blow, takes the crown off his head, takes his kingly bracelet, takes his sword, escapes the camp, heads immediately to Ziklag to deliver it to David, probably because he knows what David will do when he discovers all of this. So he's thinking probably about himself here. If I'm the one that can go and deliver the news to David, I'll probably be protected. And so that's the man who shows up now in front of David. So look at verses 1 through 10 with me here, of 2 Samuel. It came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Malachites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David that he fell on the ground and prostrated himself before David. Then David said to him, From where do you come? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, How did things go? Please tell me. And he said, The people have fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are also dead. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead? The young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and before and behold, Saul was leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. When he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called me, and I said, Here I am. He said to me, Who are you? And I answered, I am an Amalekite. Then he said to me, Please stand beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me, because my life still lingers in me. So I stood behind him and I killed him because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm and I have brought them here to my Lord. Now before we look at David's reaction to this, and that's where we're going to focus our attention today, before we do that, we need to remember some things regarding Saul and the army of Israel. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that Saul and the Israel army were David's number one enemy. Now that may sound a little interesting because considering that David was part of Israel. But remember, David had been constantly pursued by Saul. In fact, 1 Samuel, or if I've got the numbers correctly, lists 14 attempts by Saul to assassinate David. David was constantly on the run in fear of his life. And it wasn't just Saul, because Saul couldn't have done it himself. He was pursued by the army that Saul commanded. In fact, the reason that David was living in Ziklag... A Philistine, a Philistine territory was because it was the only place he felt 
he could find uh, safety. In fact, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 27, he spells it out. He says, look, I don't have any other choice. I've got to go to Ziklag because if I go into Philistine territory, Saul will not pursue me. And so I don't think, again, that it's an overstatement to say that Saul and Israel were David's number one enemy. He would go out and he would fight against the Philistines and others, but was never really in fear for his life when it came to them. In fact, he had great victories over them. So my question as we look at this is, so here David is. He's in Ziklag. He's been running for 14 years, 10 or 14 years, somewhere in that neighborhood. His number one enemy now has been put to death. He can now finally return to Israel. He's been living outside of his homeland. How do you expect him to respond? How would you respond if this were you? Would you be thankful? Would you rejoice? Would you celebrate? I'd be tempted to. How many of you are familiar with the name Madeline Murray O'Hare? Some of you, I'll say, more mature individuals um, would probably recognize that name. Some of you young folks wouldn't. Madeline Murray O'Hare was one of the most well-known atheists of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. When I got saved back in 1983, I knew who she was. Because I knew who she was even before I got saved. But once I got saved, it took on a whole different meaning for me. When you ask or when you wonder why we so oftentimes hear that school prayer or Bible reading has been banned, it's primarily because of her. Back in 1963, the Supreme Court ruled or basically made a ruling based on a lawsuit she had filed against the school system. And basically they said that you cannot lead prayer or Bible readings in school. It was all her. She's sued to have in God we trust taken off currency, under God removed from the Pledge of Allegiance. She protested the reading of the Bible verses by our astronauts. A little bit crazy. She fought to get a nativity scene removed from her state capitol. She founded the first real atheist group called American Atheists and even published the first atheist magazine in the United States. Life magazine referred to her as the most hated woman in America. One source even referred to her as big, loud, and often obscene. Yeah. In 1995, all of a sudden she disappeared. Nobody knew where she was. She disappeared with her... I guess one other individual, or one other adult, I think it was her adult son, and then her granddaughter, adult granddaughter. Nobody really knew what happened to her. They assumed that maybe she had simply fled because there was a bunch of money that had been taken out of her foundation. And so the first thought was, she had disappeared and taken all the money from her foundation and just left and was now in hiding. However, in 1995, their bodies were found. She had been murdered by somebody on her own staff. Now, the reason I bring this up is I remember both when she disappeared and in 1995, it was a year before I moved here, I remember not, not only my own rejoicing, but the rejoicing of many others when they had learned that she had been murdered. Within the Christian community, there were many who were thinking, finally, she got what she deserved because they were sick and tired of her constant attacks on Christianity and those things that we hold dear. She was an enemy of the church. And I remember how many of us felt at that time, thinking inwardly, finally, she got what she deserved. 
There are a lot of Christians, I think, feeling the same way, and even some saying that publicly. Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing, but it's kind of a good example how we might have expected David to respond with his enemy, is it not? You know, just a couple days ago, we saw the, the basically the number one general in Iran who's been responsible for the death of probably, at best count, maybe six or 700 American soldiers. He's been their primary architect, architect of terrorism all over the world. He's been a huge threat, not just to the United States, but even Muslims all over the world. How might we expect people to react when our enemies are taken out? David has a rather interesting response when his enemy is taken out that I think we can learn from. There's three unexpected reactions I find in this text. The first unexpected reaction is that David doesn't celebrate, but instead he mourns what happens. That's, I think, somewhat shocking. That he actually mourns. Look at verses 11 and 12. Then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them, and so also did all the men who were with him. They mourned, and they wept, and they fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And so the first unexpected reaction of David is that he actually mourns the death of his enemy. Now, we would expect that David would mourn Jonathan's death, because he and Jonathan were best friends. In fact, more like brothers. They were exceptionally close. So we would expect that he would do that. However, the text explicitly says that he mourned for Saul, and he lists Saul first and his son Jonathan. It says that David mourned for the people of the Lord. It says that he mourned for the house of Israel. Folks, Saul, in many respects, was not good for Israel. Now, they did... Saul did protect Israel, helped to protect them from their enemies, but think of the kind of leader he was. God condemns that kind of leadership elsewhere in the scriptures. We see that throughout the books of 1 and 2 Kings. We see it in 1 and 2 Chronicles. We see it throughout Israel's history. Bad kings, immoral kings, are bad for Israel. And yet, when Saul's life is taken, it says that David mourned for him, he mourned for the house of, the, house of Israel, and for the people of the Lord. Anybody else a little surprised by that? There's a couple of things, I think, that are remarkable, remarkable about this Reaction first, it was public. It wasn't private. The tearing of the clothes, the weeping, the fasting, those are all forms of public mourning in Israel. So this is not something David did privately. Second, he wasn't alone in his mourning. Do you notice that all 600 of his mighty men, it says, mourned along with him? These were men who were, were being targeted, just like David, by Israel's army and by Saul. They were enemies of Saul. And yet these men, it says, mourned right along with David. Now, you could say that maybe it was their loyalty to David that caused them to mourn. I think it's probably a little bit more than that. These men had just as much reason to hate Saul as David did, but there was something that happened back in 1 Samuel chapter 26. One of these 600 men, we don't know which one specifically in this text here, but one of these men a short time before this, actually offered to kill Saul himself. But now he's mourning. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 26. 1 chapter 26, or 1 Samuel 26, 
verse 8. We know the man we know the man here in this text. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now therefore, please, let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke, and I will not strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down into battle and perish. We're talking about a little bit of prophecy there. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but now please take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water and besides, or from besides, beside Saul's head, and they went away, but no one saw or knew it, nor did they take away, nor did any um, awake. For they were all asleep because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on the top of the mountain at a distance with a large area between them. And then David basically calls out and they discover what had happened. But you notice what David said there? He had one of his men offer to go and kill Saul to eliminate the enemy. Take him out. But David says no. Why? Because he's the Lord's anointed. The Lord had put him in that position of king. And so, we find that these men who were with David, there were probably many men just like Abishai who would have done for David what Abishai offered to do. Take out his enemy. So how do you get from there to now mourning for him? I think they likely remembered David's words here. It wasn't just David's words to Abishai. The other men would have probably been in the presence and heard exactly what David had said. And so they likely remembered David's words here. And they were following David's example of mourning for him. David had such high regard and respect for the position that God had placed Saul in that he was willing to look past Saul to some degree and see the position to which God had called him. You know, oftentimes, and I'll, I'll make a, a reference to, to marriage, you know, it's interesting because oftentimes... Um, when you have a struggle in a marriage relationship and a husband and a wife that are not getting along, it's not all that uncommon to hear the wife say, well, I'd respect him if, or have the husband say, well, I'd love her if. Both of those are commands given to husbands and wives. A husband is told to love his wife like Christ, not love if she respects, just like a woman is told to respect her husband, not just because she because he loves her, but because of the position that the Lord has put him in as her head. And so oftentimes, you have to look past those things. My wife has to look past my sins and my crummy leadership sometimes and still respect the position that God has placed me in as head of the family. Much like I still have to love my wife in spite of things that she might do that are unloving at times. Not a whole lot of those, by the way. And so David here is able to look past Saul and his character to the position that God had placed him in and didn't believe that he should raise his hand against that. And he passed that along to his men. Now, that doesn't necessarily explain why he would mourn. I think it's pretty clear you know, elsewhere, but it at least tells us why David was unwilling to reach out and strike, strike Saul. And so the first unexpected reaction here is that instead of rejoicing and celebrating, David and his men mourn. And they mourn for Israel. They mourn for 
not just Jonathan, but they mourn for Saul as well. The second unexpected reaction is that David actually kills this Amalekite messenger. Now think about this for a moment. I want to read verses 13 through 16. It says, David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. Then David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, Go, cut him down. So he struck him and he died. David said to him, Your blood is on your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now that's, I think, also shocking because... The first thing you might expect is that David would congratulate this young man. In fact, this young man was probably looking, if not necessarily for a reward, but for some type of thanks for doing it and thought he would be protected. Because why else would you, as an Amalekite, after David had come and wiped out half your people, go running back to the same guy and deliver news that the king of Israel had been killed? Because he's expecting something, right? Right? He just gets something he wasn't quite expecting. So, wouldn't we expect David to thank the Amalekite here? First, he no longer has to fear Saul. And then, secondly, it really almost comes across as if the Amalekite did a favor for Saul, doesn't it? The reason Saul fell on his own sword was he didn't want to fall into the hands of the Philistines who would be brutal and because he was a king would make sport of him basically meaning they would probably torture him put him on a public display they wouldn't want him to die immediately and so Saul didn't want to face that and so it looks almost like this Amalekite did a favor but David didn't quite see it that way so instead of thanks and praise David has one of his men kill the Amalekite now The text gives us a reason. It says the man was not afraid to stretch out his hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. For the same reason David refused to stretch out his hand, the reason David's men were told not to stretch out their hand, this man didn't see any issue with it. And so that's ultimately the reason why David put him to death. Because he saw it was a huge, um, I'll say slap in the face, if you will, for what God had done in placing Saul as king over Israel. Now, there's something a little less obvious in the text here. I believe David was acting out of obedience. Um, When Israel had left Egypt, they were attacked in the wilderness by a group of people called the Amalekites. As such, God pronounced judgment against them and declared that he would blot out the memory of the Amalekites from history, from all under heaven. That's in Exodus chapter 17. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, God reminded the Israelites that once they entered the land, they were to remember God's command and specifically wipe out all of the Amalekites as a form of judgment and punishment against them. Now one of the problems Saul faced was that he refused to do this. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, he failed to obey the Lord and it was one of the biggest mistakes of his life and ultimately... When Saul refused to put to death the king of the Malachites and wipe out the Malachites, that's when the Lord rejected him as king. I believe that David here, as he's looking at this Amalekite, felt he had no other option but to obey God's command and blot out the Amalekites. It was probably fresh in his mind, too, that Saul had failed to do that and God had rejected him partly because of that. But there's one thing we we see about David. Now, aside from some of his failures, like his sin with Bathsheba, he was a stickler about the law. And we'll see that in some of the other texts here in the book of 2 Samuel, where David is a stickler about the law. 
He understood the importance of obeying what God had written and what God had said. And so what we see here, this I'll say this unexpected reaction, the second one here is that David kills this man when we might expect him to thank him or to forgive him. But we don't also, I think, um, there's, there's a price here. You know, sometimes um, what we want and what we think is right doesn't always necessarily align with what the Lord has said and what the Lord thinks is right. And we see that in the church all the time today where the church and churches do things that they feel is best that seem to run contrary to what God's word says. And David here gives us an example of why it's so important to obey the Lord above all of that. And I'm sure um, David, as we see in other parts of 2 Samuel, is very gracious and he's very kind. Even when he conquers a bunch of his enemies, um, there's, there's one particular scene where he wipes out two-thirds, but he leaves a third of the, of the people. And um, it, 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 we'll get into that as we, as we study that text a little bit, but it's an act of compassion, because he could have wiped them all out. Um, but he also oftentimes, as he would conquer an area, would send them back as captives to work that area instead of just wiping all out and killing them and then resettling it or populating it with Israelites. And so David is a very compassionate man, even in his conquests. And I wonder what David thought here. Was, was there a time maybe where David thought to himself, okay, you know, um, he did me a favor. Did Saul a favor. We can let this one slide a little bit, but he's looking at him and he understands God's command is no. In spite of that, he's an Amalekite. He should be put to death. And because Israel's refused to do it, they continue to be a plague on Israel to this day. Remember, David had them wipe out his whole entire city. And So, the second unexpected reaction here is that David kills the man, but we can see why. The third and final unexpected reaction is that David immortalizes Saul and Jonathan. He actually immortalizes them. Look at chapter, or read uh, verses 17 through 27 with me. Then David chanted with his lament over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How have the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Or the daughters of their Philistines will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. O mountains of Geboah, let not dew or rain be on you, nor fields of offering. For there, is, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul had anointed with oil, or not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life, and in their death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of battle? Jonathan is slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. How have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? What's interesting about this is some of the comments I was able to find by Hebrew scholars and those who have written commentaries on 2 Samuel. One of them refers to this particular song here as the most sensitive and moving expression of mourning ever penned or uttered. Another one 
refers to this passage as one of the finest specimens of Hebrew poetry in the whole entire Old Testament. This is a tremendous, not just lament by David, but a tremendous honor and tribute that he did to both Jonathan and Saul. So he goes beyond um, not mourning to actually immortalizing both Saul and Jonathan to ensure that they would not be forgotten in Israel. I'll be real honest, I don't know that I completely comprehend or understand that. But that's what he did. For me, if even if I mustered up enough strength not to rejoice over my enemy being destroyed, I don't know that I would want to immortalize him. In fact, there are things in this text that I struggle with when he goes on and said they were pleasant in both their life and their death. That's a struggle for me. I don't know that I would describe Saul as pleasant. So how can David do that? There are a number of themes found in this psalm. I'm going to highlight them here. Verse 1 begins with an amazing word picture that's not really seen very well in the English translations. It actually is more literally the gazelle. You know what a gazelle is. Just graceful when you see them run. But the gazelle of Israel is slain on your high places. He refers to Saul as this elegant gazelle. He refers to beauty and splendor and glory. He curses the mountain on which they were killed, verse 21. Multiple times David refers to Saul and Jonathan as mighty. I think it's four times. He refers to them as mighty, powerful. He speaks of the respect that they received because of their courage and strength in battle in verses 22 and 23. He calls on the, on the women of Israel to weep over Saul because of the prosperity that he brought to Israel. Then he ends on this obviously personal and passionate tribute to his friend Jonathan at the very end of the psalm. So again, I struggle a little bit with this because of the way that this is described. And the more I thought about it, the more I began to realize that again, what David is doing here is he's looking beyond Saul personally and Paul's failures and his struggles. And he chose to see Saul through the eyes of God's purpose and plan, putting him there. But he was even willing, when it came at this time here, to look past Saul's faults and look on the way that God had used him and on some of his strengths. Saul was a pretty powerful, mighty military man. He did exactly what the Lord put him in place to do. Saul was was put in place by God to deliver Israel from their enemies. And in many respects, Saul did just that. He brought prosperity to Israel. Now, ultimately, in the end, because of his constant rebellion, the Philistines were able to defeat Saul and his army, but it brought Israel to the place where then when David was put in place, he was able to wipe out all the enemies. And so, in many respects, I think what David is doing here is he's looking past some of those struggles with Saul and looking at it through the eyes of the Lord and what the Lord had accomplished through him. That's, I think, sometimes hard for us, isn't it? We get a little bit focused on the immediate and we get focused on that stuff that happens around us. I'm going to make a political statement here, and I know some may disagree. I often will, I struggled a lot when I saw the evangelical church so favorably fall in love with Donald Trump because of some of the moral issues and other things. Um, I'll be real frank, I voted for President Trump. Not because I was thrilled with him, 
I didn't know that I had a whole lot of options. Okay? But in many respects, I've been very happy with many of the policies and the things that he's done. I do not like the fact that he is a pig and a slob. And I, and I don't have any problem saying that because the way he talks, the things that he does, the things that he says, the way that he treats people, I do not like those things. Many hate him for that. But I happen to like many of his policies. I do believe that the Lord has used him for certain things. So do I allow my hatred for who he is as a person or how he behaves sometimes prevent me from seeing the ways that God might be using him? I think that might be a disservice. Now, I'm not saying we should or shouldn't vote. I'm not making any political claims of that nature at all. I'm simply saying that that's the struggle we face sometimes. And I think David, as he's looking at Saul here, gives us a good example of maybe how we should respond when we face either enemies or those who don't always align the way we want them to align. I've struggled with how to make sense out of all this here, how to actually apply this. But again, David's response to Saul's death seems to be a result of him being able to look past the misery that Saul had caused him personally and instead say, well, God selected him, God used him, and as much pain and suffering as that may have brought to me, I'm going to choose to look at Saul from that perspective, from God's purpose and plan for Israel. And while it may not always make sense, why did God choose such a man like Saul? Why did he do that knowing what Saul would do? Clearly God knew that Saul would reject him. Clearly God knew that Saul would turn his back on him and he would have to remove his spirit from him. Why did God choose? I don't know. I don't know that David knew. But he did. Did he not? God used it somehow in his purpose and plan to accomplish exactly what he did. Maybe one of the things that God did through all of that is to set the table so that David might not fall into the same pattern. We don't know. But God, or I'm sorry, David understood that God had raised up Saul to be king to lead and protect Israel. But he also knew that Saul failed miserably and ultimately faced the consequences of his own actions. That might be another reason why David mourned. It doesn't tell us specifically in the text. But I would suspect that as David looked over Saul's life, part of his mourning may have been from that because of what could have been. I look at the way that he warned his own son Solomon. At the end of David's life, he, he talks to Solomon about what is going to be necessary, what is going to be required for him to maintain the Lord's favor. And he makes it absolutely clear, you must obey the Lord. If you don't, the same thing's going to happen to you that happened to Saul. Now, unfortunately, Solomon didn't heed those words. And so the fact that David lived his life that way, in spite of some of his failings, the fact that he's able to remind Solomon of that, I've got to believe that as he's thinking about Saul here, one of the things that he might have been mourning is the fact that Saul had failed so miserably when he was given so much by the Lord. He understood that the Lord desired obedience. That's one of the areas that Saul struggled. So even though Saul's death brought relief to David and the Amalekites' actions personally benefited him, I think he refused to ignore 
the fact that God had used Saul and had placed him there for a purpose and a reason. When I think about my initial reaction to the death of Madeline Murray O'Hare, I wonder why my first reaction wasn't mourning over the fact that she would ultimately face the one that she had persecuted for all those decades. One of the things I struggle with oftentimes is when I hear Christians talk about the rapture of the church and do it with glee, but also follow it up oftentimes with, they'll get theirs. I wish Jesus would just come back now, take us away and start the plan. And I think, you know, Peter says that the Lord has been patient because he wants as many as possible to come to salvation in him. So why has the Lord not returned in 2,000 years? Because when the Lord returns, wrath begins. It all ends. People face judgment. There is no hope. And so when the Lord takes away the church, things change drastically and people will be judged. And so I think when I hear some rejoice, I mean, I look forward to the rapture. I'm not saying that. But I think we need to look forward to the rapture with a certain amount of realization that when that happens, while it may be good for us, it will be very, very bad for the rest. And that's the thing that Peter tries to drive home. You people that are screaming, that's all the same. Why hasn't the Lord come back? Nothing has changed. And he says, yeah, you don't understand. The Lord is patient, wanting as many to come. And so as I think about Madeline Murray O'Hare, as I think about the struggles that we face by this world today, by our enemies who, face it, it's getting worse. We know that. We're facing more opposition. We will continue to face more opposition. Should we rejoice when yeah, they get theirs? Maybe we can do both. Meaning, I think there was a certain amount of relief David probably felt. My enemy's gone. But it was soon followed up with mourning over him. And I think if we were to have a proper perspective, or if we were to have the same perspective David does, or did when it comes to it came to his enemy or it comes to our enemies, there should be an element of reality that sets in that says, wow, they will face judgment. They will face the Lord. And so while we might find relief when our enemies face what they will face, there should be a certain amount of mourning. I think about this Iranian general that was killed the other day. As much as I think that it was justified, especially if some of what we've been told that he was planning additional attacks, and so this was done to prevent those attacks, time will tell if that's true or not. I would assume so, since he has a pattern of that for the last two decades. I think to myself, I could rejoice over him being taken out militarily. But you know, I also have to think where he's at now. Should there not be some mourning for the loss of a single soul? I don't think the Lord rejoices in that. A little bit different perspective, isn't it? Now, I'm not sure if that's the best application for this passage today. I think, at a minimum, what's good for us is to look at David's example and see that he, he was this compassionate um, man who 
looked at the Lord's purpose and the Lord's plan for all of this. I don't know what the Lord always has in store. Why he allows individuals like this man from Iran or why he allows the church to be persecuted the way that he does or why he does the things that he does. All I know is it's part of his plan and his purpose. And we have to put on the right glasses, I think, sometimes to see that. And so, again, one of the takeaways for me as I've thought through this is just how I respond to these things and what's actually going on in my heart and my mind as I look at enemies of the church, enemies of the Lord. The Lord will take care of that. And David even said that to his own men. He said, look, we're not going to reach out and strike, take out the king. Um, We'll let the Lord do that. And he lays out a number of examples, and one of them is that his life will be taken in battle, and it's exactly what happened. The Lord took out Saul in battle. I will let you chew on that and see if you can do a better job than I do on that and how you might be able to apply that. But these are the kind of things that we're going to see. um, Dustin had mentioned how sometimes it's difficult with narrative to pull out um, what we're to do with it from a practical perspective. And so much of that will be left to you. I'll do the best job I can in trying to highlight this. But um, you may have something else that you see in this. But one of the things I I love about this is we're going to see this in David. All of these texts are designed to tell us who David is. He actually is a type of Christ. And so there's going to be many things that we'll see in David that we will ultimately see in Christ. And believe it or not, this is one of them. When When we see the way David behaves here, how did Christ respond to his enemies? Not only those who arrested him, not only those who constantly berated him in public, not only those who nailed him to the cross, how did Christ respond to his enemies? We see the same type of thing. When Jesus is on the cross, one of the most famous things he says is, Lord, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. And so we're going to see this throughout this study in the ways that David serves as a type of Christ as well. And so uh, 